Welcome to Afternoon Delight. Real people in real stories. A local podcast for local artists. Everyone, ladies, gentlemen, non-binaries, welcome back to the last guest and episode of Afternoon Delight. I can't, I can't believe we got here. I feel emotional for several reasons. The next guest really um, blew me away. They were incredible. They are incredible because their story is brilliant. They have so much ambition dedication and they are honestly such a beautiful person inside it out and I couldn't quite believe that over four no three after over three seasons of this show we've got to the last guest it's just honestly such a what started in September as sort of a artist let's all network and keep each other going and sort of a therapy session type vibe quickly became Three seasons of absolute delights, stories, inspiring people, artists. It, it truly was, honestly, an incredible show. I'm so pleased that I'm finishing this on a high and on hope. It's really important. I'm going to add now that there will be an episode after this that is a recap, essentially, where I am going to do a little one myself, maybe 30 minutes long, just to kind of wind down, give thanks to everyone that was involved and talk about where I'm going to be going next and where do we all go next. And that will be called Afternoon Delight, What Happens Next, as a sort of outro episode. Um, and feel free to listen to that. But this is technically the last episode because this is the last guest. Now I searched high and low for this guest. I jest a joke, no. Um, she had messaged me on Facebook. Now, I remember this really vividly and clearly because um, it was so funny. We, I had sat for a couple months, really, really struggling after my friend died. And my documentary had went back on the BBC player. And I didn't know. And I got a message request from a lovely woman called Shushma Jane, who was like, oh, I watched your documentary. You're inspiring. My daughter has CF. And I've said this to Shushma, you know, like we as drag artists get a lot of people sending us messages. I get them all the time and I go, oh, because I don't know who the person is. But I went, oh, no, I want to read that. Who's this? And I was blown away because that came honestly at the right time in my life, how things were. And I found it truly inspiring that someone went out their way to contact me who's in London to tell me that that documentary helped them because... A lot of people sometimes forget with this documentary I did, Jordy Six Five Reasons to Live, that I was going through a really hard time emotionally and physically, and my health wasn't doing very well. And emotionally, I wasn't coping because it was filmed when I was going through a horrible breakup. And the fact that it still, despite the fact of my own internal stuff going on, helps other people makes me so happy to know that I'm out there making a difference, especially down south in England. She herself, though, has made a huge difference. I read her book and I contacted her after reading it. She added me on Facebook. I seen she had a book on her um, bio and went, oh, what's this? I'm going to order it. 
And she's like me. She loves when I like post quotes, and I love when she posts quotes because we're very similar people, actually. Two ends of a coin, really. And I was like, oh, I'm going to read this. And it's called Layla's Life, My Words. And I was like, oh, okay, what's this? And I bought it, and it was an educational book on FASD, which is spoken about quite a lot during the podcast interview, and Layla's conditions. She has CF, but she keeps very well with CF, which is brilliant. And Shushma tells me about all the work she's doing and the work she now wants to do writing another book. But let's get on to Shushma telling the story, as that only feels just right for the last guest to have their moment. I honestly mean it when I say it. This is an absolutely incredible episode. I was blown away. And I'm so glad Shushma messaged me when I was in that really horrible place and I got that message because it was the right time. I do believe in time and place. Don't believe everything happens for a reason. I don't. I feel like some things really just shouldn't happen at all. But I do believe that time and place can be a big thing in the universe. So without further ado, the guest who was at the right time and right place for me, who is absolutely inspiring and a true delight of afternoon delight, give it up for a writer, an incredible icon, Shushma Jane. Welcome back to Afternoon Delight with Jory Delight. It has been honestly such a roller coaster, three seasons of Afternoon Delight, but I have got an inspirational woman and offer. It is, of course, Shushma Jane. How are you doing? I'm fine, thanks, Jordi. And um, thank you for, you know, letting me come on your podcast. Oh, no, thank you for agreeing to, because obviously we've come in contact through my documentary that I did with BBC many years ago. And <laughs> sort of during the pandemic, you messaged me, like, I've watched this, and, and your daughter, Layla, you know, obviously has CF, which I did not realise until I was reading the book in depth and going, wow. There's a lot to kind of unpack here and discuss. And with obviously your message, it was so lovely. And I, I'll be honest, like Shushma, I get a lot of messages on Facebook from people with stuff that I go, who's this message request from? But it was the loveliest message to receive during the pandemic. And I'm so glad the documentary helped. Um, I was really kind of you to message me that. So thank you for joining me on Afternoon Delight. This is going to be a great episode. Thank you. No, it was inspirational, that documentary. Oh, do you know, it's so funny though, but like, see, I get, so I get a couple of people, right, during the pandemic, you and I think four other people had messaged me, watch your documentary, really enjoyed it, you're incredible, and I'd be like, oh, thank you, but that is not who I am now, it's so interesting, because when that was filmed, it was the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, and it kind of, the unfortunate thing that I always tell people is, after that documentary, things really went down south, like I needed lung transplant, work wasn't really doing well, and it's now fortunate that although the pandemic has been happening, things are actually, because of CAFTRU, et cetera, really taken off in the CF community. And it's just lovely to hear parents like yourself going, oh, I watched you doing this and it gives me hope for my young child. So no, not at all. I'm glad that that's something you took from it. But it's just a continuous change. Do you know what I mean? It's such an interesting dynamic with the CF community right now. Um, and I don't know, as a parent, you know, was Layla's your first experience of seeing someone with CF or have you, have you been involved with other people with CF? No, first experience, to be honest. Um, obviously knew, knew of it, like, you know, affecting the heart, I mean, lungs, sorry, and, you know, and the stomach, but didn't know what it really is about, to be honest. You know, you hear it, but mm. as you're not living it, you don't know it. So obviously we've learned through Layla and still learning, you know, with Layla and through Layla. 
Yeah, no, you're so right. And the thing is, the amount of people I speak to that, see, when I went to like the gay scene in Edinburgh, I started drinking at CC's and stuff, the amount of people that I'd say, I've got CF, and they'd go, oh, it's that thing where you have to get patted on your chest. And I'd be like... Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they say that to me all the time. They go, oh, do you do that? Yeah. And I just look at them and go, uh, no. <laughs> it's funny because that is such an... It's not like... Um, a bad thing but it's such an outdated thing that I think they stopped percussion physiotherapy in like 2003 in Scotland so it's that long ago <laughs> showing my age but, you and, know. and we remember that because my brother um had Duchenne and obviously we had to do it then but actually as he got older they were like we don't do that anymore so yeah still remember when it you know when that stopped as well yeah Brilliant. So this is going to be a lovely episode and, and we're looking at hope this season of Afternoon Delight. So I think this is a perfect episode for that as an example. So would you mind introducing yourself to my listener, Shushma? Yes, so I'm Shushma. And as Geordie said, I'm an author, but I do feel a bit of a fraud because I've only written one book. <laughs> and, um, and so I live with my parents, a very different dynamic. I live with my parents and my older brother lives with my parents as well. So there's a four of us. And obviously there's Layla. And then we have foster children that come in and out of the house as well. And your book, obviously, that we're going to be touching quite a lot on is about Layla and sort of your experience as a parent, isn't it? A hundred percent, yeah. So I would say Layla was my second experience as a parent because I had my, I had my younger brother and there was a 14-year age gap. So I kind of think that kind of, I was kind of like the second parent with my mum besides her, to be honest. Yeah, and I'd read that in your book as well. Was it particular dystrophy that your brother had? Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it was, yeah. Funnily enough, I think my nana had a form of muscular dystrophy. I don't think it was the same one, but she had it as well. So I thought that was really weird when I was reading your book and I thought, the amount of connections here between our teams in different cities, like... I know, I know, because obviously when I see, like, some of your Facebook stuff, I'm like, oh, yeah, I can connect with that. Yeah, yeah, relate to that. (laughs) My favourite thing I shared that really connected us was um, the Halle Berry thing about being single and living your life. I was like, I'm yeah. this, this is my life. Like Me, 100%. I read that and I was like, yes, that's me, 100%. And I'm proud of that. <laughs> so chat me through, obviously. So you're like, you know, this is your Oprah moment, I would say, right? You know, chat me through. <laughs> Before, obviously, Layla came into your life and you wrote this book that obviously is absolutely incredible and I want to give the chance now to promote it for you and raise awareness, that's fundamentally the, pro- uh, the point. You know, what was your life like? You know, where did you grow up, study, work, live before this book? So always um, born and bred in London, northwest London. Lived here all my life in the same house, <laughs> which people find, like, really weird. Um, and, and then I did my um, degree, actually, in English language and literature. So that's where my love had always come through because I had a really good English teacher, actually, and he was the one that kind of pushed me with like the creative writing. And um, and then my brother was diagnosed. So he, he was born when I was 14, like I said, but he was diagnosed when he was three and a half with Duchenne. Mm. And I was doing my A-levels and I was like, right, don't do my A-levels, I wanna chuck everything in. And actually my teacher was like, no, come on, do your last year. And then if you don't wanna go to uni or whatever, do what you want. And um, my parents were really supportive and said, yeah, do A-levels and then think what you wanna do. So I took time out after my A-levels and my brother then was going to a specialist nursery to kind of be like being assessed and it was really random actually they just said like they needed some volunteers at a Christmas party they were short and my mum said like do you want to go to it like you'll be going with Arv and I was like yeah okay fine so I went to it was volunteering and then they were like 
actually, you're really good with kids. Do you want to come and volunteer? What are you doing? And I was like, okay, yeah, fine. And then three months later, I got a job as an LSA there. Um, and so, and then from LSA, I ended up being like an LSA kind of teacher cover. So like a level four mm-hmm. after doing my studies. But while I was working, I was also doing my degree aside that. Because like my mum always knew I wanted to do my degree. Not, not because I was ambitious or wanted to do something professional with it. That was just my personal thing. So I did that through the Open University while I was working full time. And I, didn't, I decided then that I didn't want to kind of go through the teaching route just because I wanted the like the shorter hours, the holidays with my brother kind of thing. Mm-hmm. And I did Open University because I knew that actually if I needed to drop out, I'd have like a 10 year gap where I could pick it up. Mm-hmm. And, um, and then obviously then, you know, my brother died he had Duchenne, but he didn't die because of Duchenne. He died because of medical negligence. Um, and and so obviously then that happened. And then my mum had always wanted to do fostering. Mm-hmm. And so this was back in 2012, 2011. And she didn't do it when we were younger because she felt, you know, mum and dad were both working full time. She felt she wouldn't be able to give that full opportunity to the children. And then obviously Arvin was born and then he had his illness. And, and again, like my parents felt, you know, they wouldn't be able to, you know, commit full time. And then 2012, my mom had seen like an advert in the local paper about the fostering. And she, she spoke to us all and said like, what do you think? Like, should we go to like the um, session, see what it's all about? And so me, my dad and my mom went to it and we were like, yeah, okay, fine, let's do it. So, and just so you know, Geordie, that I'm kind of like the second foster carer because my dad's profoundly deaf and he does have like mild learning disabilities. Mm-hmm. So kind of like my mum's kind of been like the, my mum and my dad. Mm-hmm. Kind of, so my dad's there obviously, you know, he's worked full time and he's done everything, but it's kind of been my mum's been kind of like the driving force. Mm-hmm. So, and that's how we then started fostering. And then because I lost my brother, I kind of lost interest in writing. I kind of lost interest in everything, really. Obviously, I still had my job, but I just lost interest in everything. But then I thought, you know what, I'm going to go back into teaching. So also I picked it up and did my teacher training. And I was still at the same school for there for 19 years, did my teacher training. was teaching there, teaching um, at like a um, special needs kind of college as well. And then two years ago, as Layla's needs started getting greater, I was like, okay, I'm... I, was, I went part-time, but I felt it just wasn't working. I had that guilt of, I wasn't, I wasn't really doing good at anything. And I felt I needed to kind of just, just quit my job, which was very weird because obviously working for 19 years and then not working <laughs> was, was really weird. But I'm lucky because I'm fortunate. I live with my parents, you know, they don't have a mortgage and stuff. So I'm fortunate I don't have to worry for things like that. And I have a brother who's really good to me as well. <laughs> so that's how that came about. That's amazing. Like, and the thing is, like, I totally understand what you mean that I've been as an artist thinking, you know, I'm a workaholic. I always have been. I always will be. But I I sell, like, you know, if I was to adopt a child, um, like, weeks ago, when I'd watched my mum, Tracy Beaker, I tweeted this thing saying, oh, you know what, like, if I don't meet a guy in the next five years, I'm probably going to adopt a child on my own because I I don't care. It's what Cam done. And someone had replied to him, don't worry, he's out there. You're going to find him replied to her like great babes but I don't need him to do it and she was like oh okay and I was like this wasn't a passive I'm single and miserable this was a do you know what actually I could do things my own way and live my Aquarius life (laughs) 
<laughs> Jordi, do you know what? And that's why that article that you posted just hit me because like I decided obviously like when my brother, you know, had this diagnosis and stuff, I knew that I didn't want to get married. I didn't want to settle down. I didn't want to have kids. I just wanted to spend whatever time I had with my brother. And I still remember people really judgmental. Like they just thought it was like the Asian community. Oh, is it because it's the Asian community? You feel you have to be obliged to look after your brother. Oh, oh, is it because like you feel guilty and you should be living your life? And I'm like, you're not listening. This is my life and it's my choice. And then I'd have some people, even like friends, like my mom's friends go, do you not care about your daughter? Are you not, you're not thinking about her because she's not living her life? And I would get really upset. Like, mm. so that's when I kind of used to say to people, it's not the be, be end and all end, you know, marriage, kids, just because you haven't done it doesn't mean you're not living your life. And for me, I give a really good example of people get married and then they get divorced. But just because they've done it, people don't ask them again, well, are you not going to get married again? Because they've done it. They've ticked that box. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? I so, yeah. Yeah. And, but people don't think of it like that. And I'm like, no, it doesn't, it, I don't need that to complete me. No, <laughs> this is the thing you're so right. Because for me, you said it there yourself, you know, some people are like, she's not living her life. And it's like, not living her life for who? If, if you're doing it for you, that's you living your life. To whose agenda, whose action plan, like no one's. It's you're living your life for you. And I totally, do you know what? I really understand what you mean about your brother as well. Because when, when people are not well in your life, you do treasure those moments you will have and just want to give all that your divided attention. You know, especially during this pandemic, I found that a lot of my friends that if I didn't text them back straight away, I was getting messages like, why are you not texting back? And I would say to them, it got to that point because, you know, being on Zoom all the time, I'd say to people, when I reply, is me giving my actual attention. If I send you half-arse messages, that's not me actually giving you the fair amount of attention you deserve. Do you know what I mean? So I yeah. stand treasuring those moments and actually giving your full and divided attention to it. And it's interesting because I do get what you mean that I feel like if I did adopt a child, I'd go, am I going to be a freelance artist? I just don't know if I could hack that because I'd want to give them all my attention. Um, and I've kind of got, my plan I'm quite an ex-control freak so I try not to rely too much on plans because I know that this pandemic's kind of taken that away you can't always have a plan because a pandemic will happen but I totally understand what you mean and it's just so interesting to hear more about your story so you know talk me through then you've said it there yourself you know I I see someone like you and go this is quite inspiring for me as a role model because I would want to do something like that in the future adopt on my own and I remember seeing an article once that was about a gay man who did it on his own. And I thought to myself, can a gay man do that on their own? Because it was like, I think 2019, but that's because in Scotland, you never heard of people in the queer community doing that on their own. Do you know what I mean? You just didn't. So it's good that I've seen someone like that. And then someone like you have now seen it and went, actually, it's not just Cam on Tracy Beaker. It can actually happen. But, but I think it's society is so ingrained because people have said to me, but how, how could how could they let you adopt? You, you, you're like, you're single. And I'm like, yeah, but that doesn't matter. Yeah. But it's really interesting that we think we're really open-minded as a society, but we're not. We're really ingrained and really institutionalized. To mm. be honest. Mm -hmm. <laughs> totally. So talk me through then, what made you, I know obviously you've mentioned it there briefly, but what kind of gave you the inspiration, or I suppose inspiration may be a weird word to use, but what made you want to, adopt Layla you know how did that happen yeah so so I start from like the beginning of how so we were fostering so obviously like I said my mum became the main foster care and I was the second foster care because obviously I was working full-time then <clears throat> and then my mum got a phone call 
regarding Layla, she was just a fetus then. And obviously they knew, they wasn't sure if basically Layla would be, you know, would be born if she would survive because they knew that birth mum had been drinking heavily throughout pregnancy. And they said to my mum, would you be happy to be on standby? Um, we'd only been foster carers for six months by then. Um, and my mum said, yeah, that's fine. So, and then obviously my mum got the phone call to say, you know, they, they don't name them at that time because they're kind of like a fetus. They say, you know, baby so-and-so has been born. Mm-hmm. So we went and picked up Layla when she was nine days old from the hospital. Mm-hmm. And um, at that time she was very petite because she, everyone thought she was um, premature, but she wasn't, she was full time. It was because obviously that's what happens when, you know, when you drink alcohol during yeah. pregnancy, yeah. that, you know, the brain, the, the whole body doesn't form properly. And so obviously she came to us and then we got a phone call. My mum got a phone call a few weeks later to say, you need to go to this hospital, this specialist hospital, because we think she may have cystic fibrosis. And that came out of the blue. It evoked a lot of emotions because it was kind of the same hospital where my brother was and the medical negligence. And then, yeah. And, and obviously her Layla's birth parents hadn't mentioned like cystic fibrosis. Um, so obviously it came out of the blue for social services and my mum was really strong my mum was like well you know what it's not Leah's fault so we're going to go to the hospital um, and we're going to see if she has it because obviously it came through the um, you know the hill prick test so obviously we went there and obviously then she was diagnosed with cystic fibrosis Um, and then I kept hearing like we kept hearing about the fetal apple spectrum disorder I didn't, didn't really know much about it but you just you know social services kept throwing it out there you know birth to mom's drinking she might have it and we were like okay and then we kind of knew like we kind of did our homework on the cystic fibrosis and then we were thinking oh if she goes up for adoption because we'd seen and heard of so many families where adoption breaks apart because they were like not for us but I'm just going to use it so people who are listening may understand it wasn't the ideal child for them it wasn't the perfect child for them and so things get tough and we thought, we don't want this for Layla. We love Layla. She's been here from day one. Um, we know that um, children who are adopted, fostered, have gone through this trauma, have attachment problems. And Layla will have that because obviously, you know, she was with her birth mum. You know, she was in hospital. She was moved to a different hospital during those nine days. And then we thought for her to then go to another home and then have that attachment. So we decided as a family that, when when the birth parents said actually they didn't they didn't they were walking away and that Layla was going up for adoption we then discussed it as a family that we wanted to adopt Layla mm. and then we kind of decided who 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 should adopt Layla you know my parents kind of discussed it and they were like you know we've had you we're, we're much older we'd be more better being the grandparents me and brother then discussed it and brother's like well you know his work is quite it's quite full-on and heavy so we were like okay then then I'll adopt Layla but it's kind of you know, like when I read your question about the single parent, for me, I don't feel like a single parent because we do it as a family. Mm-hmm. So again, I don't feel, you know, when people go, like, how do you feel being a single parent? I, I, I feel like I can't, I can't say that because mm-hmm. I'm lucky because I live with my family and we literally do do it together. Mm-hmm. So that's, that's how the adoption came about. It was all, it wasn't like planned or anything. It just happened. Um, and yeah, she's been a blessing and, and we're just, yeah, <laughs> she's our way of sunshine. Yeah, well, she's absolutely beautiful because just I watched the videos you post on your page. 
She's, well, and I read that in your um, book about the attachment stuff with the fact that at the beginning, you know, Layla couldn't sleep um, unless your mum was there because she was always around her. And I was like, yep, the attachment stuff. A lot of people know this in afternoon delight that I've already said to friends that in the next five years, I might train as like a sort of psychotherapist and a counsellor. Um, and the things like, I read psychology books in my spare time because I'm a weirdo, right? And my hobbies is <laughs> attachment theories. <laughs> but yeah. literally... <laughs> But when I was reading that, that was really interesting. Your book, I was like, oh, this is literally the things that I actually totally understand and relate and can see through a different lens as someone who's reading about that and hobbies. Um, so I totally understood. I also just think the cystic fibrosis thing is interesting. I'm so glad you said this because, do you know what? Like, I know exactly what you're talking about, that there will be parents that they'll go, I want to adopt. And then they find that and go, oh, <laughs> do I want a child that's got that? <laughs> And, and, you know, now you've mentioned that. So when I did my, I was lucky because we, because we did the foster and we'd only just done it. So it'd been a year when Layla was going, kind of had to do my assessment. And I wanted the same social worker, the assessment social worker, because it's really intrusive. I call it interrogation. And I was like, well, this social worker knows everything about me. Can I, can I please have her for the adoption? Because she already knows me. And I was lucky it'd only been kind of six months and I was lucky she was free and she does, she does do the adoption. And I had to do like this initial three day, training for adoption and I was sitting there and I was really trying not to be judgmental because I could hear you know couple single parents going well I want a boy I want a girl I want a mother who has no mental history um I want I want I want to know that the mother knows who the father is and I was just sitting there thinking okay do, do they want a child that they're going to love unconditionally or do they want a child that's going to fit into their family Wow. And I, the example that I gave, because everybody wanted babies, because they felt there would be no issues. And the example I gave was actually, my brother was diagnosed when he was three and a half. We thought he was okay, you know, he was healthy. And we knew there was, you know, that, you know, he's um, physically, you know, his walking was a little bit slow. And the doctors thought, you know, he was just lazy, but he wasn't diagnosed till he was three and a half. So I, you know, I did say, I did speak out. I was like, look, my brother wasn't diagnosed till he was three and a half. You dropped a baby. And then that happened are you saying that actually that you wouldn't be able to love this child and you're going to give them back? Wow. So if you adopt them in the four and five, actually, you know what you're going to let yourself in for because actually by then, you know, these children may have diagnosis or, you know, they may have issues that, that you know that you'll be able to support them. Mm. And I think for me, how I see it is people forget that in the olden days, and I say olden days, when children were adopted, they were adopted because of, you know, out of wedlock or because of poverty. Mm-hmm. Children who come into care now is for very different reasons. Mm. And, and I think people forget that. And, and they need to remember that actually. They need to love a child unconditionally, you know. And we fostering, we're on the other side. So we, we actually meet couples who are thinking of adopting and, you know, they ask us about the children. And sometimes I want to say, actually, are you taken on board? If his child doesn't speak, because you think they're going to speak in a year's time. What happens if they don't speak? Are you saying that you won't be able to love them? Mm. Or if they do stay in a specialist school, mm. are you saying that actually it, it doesn't fit into your family, it doesn't fit into your lifestyle, then actually you shouldn't be adopting because you don't know what's going to happen because we, we've gone to, like me and mum have gone to like adoption support groups mm. and we've had families go, my child was fine and then teenagers and then it all hit and all the attachment, everything comes out. But also because they wanted to find the adoptive parents, but their families kind of didn't let them. They wouldn't speak about them. And so they kind of had to go behind their backs. 
uh-huh. and learn things. And obviously nowadays it's so easy to find people because of social media mm. and that causes a whole load of, of worms. I think people forget that they feel they have to own these children and they don't. Mm-hmm. They would love you unconditionally, but you have to be honest. It's part of their history and I don't think that should be denied either. It's part of them. It's part of their identity. Yeah, it's so interesting because we were talking about this earlier before we started the interview that you know, identity is crucial, especially, I think, for anyone, let alone a child that's going into, um, from, from care, going into a home that they don't know. So I totally agree with you. Um, it's interesting just hearing about sort of um, these, like that powerful moment you mentioned there, actually, of do they want to adopt a child or do they want a child to fit into their family home? And it's like, whoa, hold on, <laughs> that is striking. Because it's so true, though, that I hear that and go, the amount of people that probably do, especially with gender, you know, when I, I have a few friends that are pregnant at the moment and one of them did a gender reveal and I was like, yeah, live your life because it's her baby. And one of them was like, oh, I'm, I'm going to say now I'm having a wee girl, um, but I'm happy that the baby is healthy and that's yeah. all that matters to me. And I was like, yeah, amazing. And then I've got another friend who's like, oh, I want it to be a surprise. I'm not bothered until I give birth and we've got some names and we'll see it. You know, when you meet the baby, you'll know if you want, if that name lies. But it's interesting because, you know, the people that go, I want a child and it has to be like this. And it's like, are you living in the real world right now? Like, Exactly. And I think, I think that's what worries me because I think this is why adoption breaks down. And I do, and I think what worries me as well, social services kind of, kind of do it to think, oh, actually, they'll be fine. We're just, we'll get them, we'll get these children adopted and then they've got a loving home and everything will be fine. It, doesn't work like that it's not a fairy tale we have to be realistic because actually these children then got adopted we're actually making it worse if it does break down mm. so we shouldn't we shouldn't tint it you know all roses and stuff we should just be very honest mm-hmm. and say this is how it is and will you be ready for it are you able to love this child unconditionally and I know that you'll have to maybe be careful and mindful of what you say but what was it sort of like going through the adoption process was it quite hard was it quite difficult was it quite draining or I think, uh, like I said, I think I would have said yes, but because I'd done the Fosterman assessment, right? like I said, I was so intrusive. And then, so that that is, so basically when you're doing the adoption assessment, it's it's including the Fosterman assessment. It's part of the same assessment, but obviously there's additional things. Mm. And because I had the same social worker who assessed me, that made it so much more easier. And I think, if I'm honest, it probably was easier because Layla was already living with us at home. It wasn't where we were being matched to a child. So basically... So, so nowadays, I don't even you know this, Geordie, because obviously you said you're thinking of adopting. So it came from America. I, I don't agree with it, if I'm honest. But what they do is, it, it's, so they have these kind of parties and children, so these children are going to get adopted. You have to put them in their, you know, their birthday suits, you know, their, you know, these lovely dresses, and they have to kind of perform on the day. So that, you know, you get them to do all these different activities, you know, what they're engaging in, all these different activities. All, all the children are kind of there. And then you have all these adopters that are coming in and kind of thinking, oh, yeah, we kind of like this child. We kind of like the look of them or, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And then, and then you go and have a conversation. And then obviously you come back and then you tell your adoption social worker which child you kind of felt particularly drawn to. But for me, what about those children that actually weren't picked on that day? And they have to keep going to these parties, these three, four, five, six, seven parties. Some of them have been going for years. And how does that make them feel? I'm projecting. With how I feel about that, it's not a bloody auction. Exactly, and that's what I've said. It's not an auction for sale. Like exactly, and that's exactly what I've said. They're not for sale. These are children. They've got feelings, and I think I think we forget. Yeah, 
that's just yeah. head uh, messed up head fuck for me. I'm like, wow, like, because it's just as also someone who is a performer for a living. I'm like, this is not real life. This is my job. Whereas hearing that dressed up and put on this stuff, like, oh my god, like, yeah, yeah, tense. That is intense. So obviously, Layla, you've adopted Layla. She's your child, and then you know all these things come out, you know, she's got CF and she's obviously got stuff to do with sensory in your, in your book you mentioned, you'll know, um, pardon my ignorance, but you'll know the proper definitions because I don't want to say something that's wrong. But, you know, what was it like sort of as a mum? Because obviously my mum has me, well, had me, I'm obviously an adult now, but <laughs> I have CF, you know, what was it like for you as a family getting your head around all that in the sort of first five years, really? Um, I think for us it was just learning. So we just wanted to learn you know, as you do, you, you know, you read up on all, all the literature, you want, you want to do the best mm-hmm. for your child. Um, and just learning what was right, what wasn't wrong, and making, making these decisions, you know, like, you want your child to kind of have fun, but, mm-hmm. but then they're not going to do this, and, and is it right doing this? Mm-hmm. So I think it was, le- and when I, I guess I'll explain it more clearly, like, you know, going to a farm or playing in the mud, you know, and, and when Layla was growing up, Peppa Pig was very out there. And what does Peppa Pig do? She jumps in muddy puddles. <laughs> yeah and it was like okay um but slowly slowly I've kind of I've kind of learned to kind of do what's best for Layla Mm -hmm. to be honest and and it was kind of fun I have to say like like learning about the physio the one thing I loved was doing the physio ball and jumping with her because it was such good exercise for me as well as 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 well as for her yeah I think I think for us as a family it's just been a learning curve you know learning learning about another illness to be honest I think this has been an eye-opener, though. And I think, you know, I have mentioned it in my book because my, you know, Arvind, because obviously so my brother could could talk, but he was in a wheelchair. But people assumed he couldn't talk because he was in a wheelchair. You know, they assumed he wasn't toilet trained because he was in a wheelchair. And then there was Layla, and, and you probably get it too. Are you sure she's all? She looks all right. Mm-mm. You know, what, what's going on here? Why do you have to do this? And and are you, are you just not muddy-coddling her? And for me, it was a real eye-opener because people assumed she's toilet trained or people assumed she can understand because she looks okay. So mm. so for me, that's been a real eye-opener, that people judging yeah. that, that actually she's okay. Not that I don't want her to be okay, but you know what I mean. <laughs> I know what you mean. And my mum, so I was a late diagnosis with CF. I was two and it was a <laughs> misdiagnosis issue. But my mum's friends, my mum knew something was wrong with me. She was just like, the child's not well. But all the friends were like, are you just molly coddling them? You know, are they just, are, is the child maybe just like a bit sensitive and maybe like, because I was crying constantly because I was malnourished because of the CF. But of course, yeah. like you keep feeding that baby far too much. Their nappies are filled and she's like, oh my God. <laughs> like, <laughs> so I totally understand what you mean with the sort of molly coddling stuff. And it's just, I hate that. that unfortunately, it is that thing in any sort of disabled community is that sort of thing of oh well like invisible illnesses especially at CF you know oh you look fine like when I'd be off school a lot of my friends in high school not in primary school as much because I was quite visibly ill as a primary school child whereas at high school I was quite self-conscious and didn't want people to see me coughing in front of them and uh, the amount of friends that would go oh um you know are you just like oh at it or not want to come in and I'd be like no I'm like in hospital with an IV like <laughs> And I think you're right, because also, you know, you would also know that sometimes actually, you know, you've got your cough, you're not feeling well, but you look okay, but actually you just need to be at home and chill out. 
And I think that's sometimes very hard for people to understand because they're like, but you look okay. And, and, and actually, no, you might be in two, three different antibiotics and you've got all this stuff going on. Mm-hmm. But people, people don't realise what's going on inside your body. And I think for me, that's been a real eye-opener about, you know, like you said, the invisible disabilities and how people... People have, people have in their mind what disability is meant to look like or what it should be like. Mm-hmm. And I think that that has been a real, a real eye-opener for me. And I was doing a webinar, I mentioned to, to you earlier, I was doing a webinar last night on my normality because I've been creating yeah. this piece on what my normality is because I've never liked the phrase normal. Do you know what I mean? Like, what is normal? But, um, but I was talking to them about how this shielding experience I had was very much what, you know, a lot of people with health issues that... Um, lived at home were told to shield but then there are people that were told actually with transmission of COVID you know don't go in the same household as people and people were like this is so difficult and I'm like welcome to my life the last 26 years like this has always been my life you know what I mean like yeah, um, yeah. so it's been an eye-opener so you know obviously you know you've wrote this book can you tell me kind of what got you to write it and get it published then what kind of inspired that I know it's obviously Lila's life but I'm more intrigued to know how did you put it together and how did it come about I- I'm going to touch on, obviously, let's go from the shielding. <laughs> so what you said about the shielding is so obviously we had to shield as a family. And for me, it was, oh, my God, we're going to have to shield. How am I going to keep Layla entertained? We're cooped up at home. <laughs> and because, obviously, you know, she was going to school. And then and then we had something on, you know, every evening and during the weekend because we had to always keep Layla engaged. Mm. And then, obviously, the shielding kicked off. And I think after the four, five, six weeks, we kind of got into a routine and was like, this is okay, actually, this is okay. Mm. And I knew, obviously, you know, Layla was, I knew Layla, home was Layla's safe place. Mm-hmm. Because I knew, you know, when she goes to school, she didn't eat, she was very dysregulated. You know, when we went on holiday, she was very dysregulated, she didn't eat. So I knew home was always her safe place because she did eat and she could be herself and have her meltdowns. Mm. And then, but actually I didn't realise how much, to be honest, if, I, if I'm honest, because the children showed how much actually the world was, was affecting Layla, how much pressure was being put upon her, upon her mental health. You know, I always kept saying to school, I'm really worried about her mental health, but I didn't realise how much it really played a part on her. Mm-hmm. So when the children came in, I could see actually Layla was so relaxed because she was doing stuff I never thought she would do, like have dinner, you know, have, have you know, dip a chip in and bake beans. And it was like, oh my God. She's asking for dinner. This is amazing. Um, and then I was like, this is because she's anxious. She's got no pressures on her. You know, there's no demands on her. This is her being safe at home. Yeah. And then and then when I started speaking to, like, obviously I'm not going to in the hospital, but, you know, when I started speaking to the hospital and they were like, this is really good. So when she goes back to school in September, she's going to be fine because she's doing it at home. And I was like, you're not listening to me. You know, I was saying to myself, like, you're not listening to me. What I kept saying was, yeah we'll see you know you know I have said you know this is Layla safe and we'll see I said because actually I'm a bit worried because obviously when things you know start to open up in September actually we might just have a big more bigger meltdown we might actually go like 10 step backwards because this is a safe home and now she's well it's like it's hit her again and so I've always kind of wanted to tell professionals that they're not listening mm-hmm. because I guess for me, it was Layla has cystic fibrosis, but as soon as I mentioned cystic fibrosis, everyone would be like, oh, cystic fibrosis, oh no, that must really affect her. But also I've written in the book, it's mild for her. So actually for me, cystic fibrosis wasn't the big issue. And, you know, even, even the team she's under, all they could think of was cystic fibrosis. They couldn't see the whole big picture. 
And I kept thinking, like, you know, you mentioned about eating and, and you know, the malnutrition. Obviously, Layla was, but that wasn't because of cystic fibrosis. That was because of her fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. It affects their eating. Mm-hmm. And every time I kept saying to them, you know, it, it's because of that. It's not because of cystic fibrosis. It, you know, the tube, yes, she has a feeding tube, but, and obviously it's going to get her weight up, but that's not going to help her overcome what she's feeling because she's got brain damage. I could never tell them. Then I thought... But how do I explain to my friends now that I want to home educate? Because actually people look at Layla and think Mm. she's okay. And they'll just think I'm mad. And actually it's because of the virus I'm keeping her home. Because you know how many people have said to me, are you anxious? Is that why you're keeping her home? And I'm like, no, it's got nothing to do with the virus. It's because she's thriving. Mm. So then I thought, right, I'm going to write a blog. I'm going to write a blog on Facebook. And I thought, I started doing my research on home education. So I put my hands up. Yes, I was teaching. I had no clue what home education was. <laughs> I actually, used to, I was one of those parents who think, why would you home educate your child? Why would you want them home all day? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to be honest. And then I started doing my research. And actually, I was like, there's no law to say you can keep your child home. You can keep your child home. But again, it's institutionalized that we think we have to send our child to school when they're five and we don't as long as they have an education. And mm. that education could be anything. Mm. So again, that was an eye-opener. So I thought, okay, my friends wouldn't know that because I'd have to explain that. But actually, my f- friends don't really know Leia. Don't get me wrong, obviously, they've spent the day with her, but actually, do they actually really know her? They see Leia and I think, actually, she's okay. And actually, she's probably a little sport brat who's having tantrums. Even if I try and explain it to them, it's still not the same. So I thought, I need to kind of tackle each one of these invisible disabilities that Layla has. Mm-hmm. So I write a blog in each one, and then I'll get to the home education of why I'm home educating her. So what was meant to be a one-off started as a series of, I think, 12 blogs. <laughs> and then actually I started getting really good feedback from people, and they were like, oh, we didn't know this. And actually, we didn't know you were doing this with Layla, and this would be an eye-opener. And actually, I'm working in this profession. Have you, have you decided to write a book? And have you decided to do this? And I was like, really? Mm, mm, no, I wasn't doing it for that. I was just doing it to kind of tell my friends. But then actually, I started getting more and more feedback. And then people were like, no, seriously, you need to write a book. And that's how the book kind of started. Because my friend, who I do mention in, in the book, mm-hmm. he's kind of written two books. And he kind of just sent me an email and was going, right, this is how it's going to look like. These are the contents. And there you go. And I think if he hadn't sent that email... And giving me that push, the book probably wouldn't have happened because I wouldn't have known where to start or what to do. <laughs> totally. And it's honestly, it was, I messaged you earlier just for the interview saying to you that I cried, I was beaming. <laughs> I was, because it was very much for me, like looking in the mirror almost to my younger self. Um, some of the things were so similar that I had to do a lot of the tests that were like jumping on a trampoline, holding something in cat things because I think they were worried because of my CF that it was affecting my motor skills a lot of the time um so it was a lot of that sort of stuff and then Butlins was mentioned several times I used to go to Butlins every year of my family so that's How weird that yeah <laughs> we went to Skegness every month every year it was amazing it's just yeah. so interesting I thought another personal connection but it was really interesting for me because it was educating me on other things because you know I did think it was a good thing in a way for me that when I read it, I saw CF. Oh, and all this too. It wasn't, she's got CF. Now listen to what this is. Because 
with me, like a big thing as an artist and as an activist was always CF is my life. And today I had to speak to a job that were like, they put a line in the script for some of them doing. We're like, I'm, I'm Jory Delight. I have CF. I was born with this. And I was like to them on the phone today, I went, listen, can we take that out? And they were like, why? And I went, it's nothing to do with what I'm doing for you. It doesn't need to be said. And they were like, oh, but you know this? And I said, yeah, totally. But I'm well now. And I don't really need to say it because it doesn't need to be in. Like, I'll tell people I, I'm an activist for the CF Trust, but I'm not going to be like, I'm the one with CF. Now, listen, if you talk about that, like, no, there's... there's not relevant. Yeah, it wasn't relevant, but it was interesting in the book. So I thought, oh, and it was when you said in the book, oh, it's very mild for her. And I thought, good, I'm glad. I'm really glad because anyone's got mild CF, I go, good. People are like, no, no, that. <laughs> Good thing, we're happy that it's not like 1,200 pages of it. Um, but it was interesting, and you obviously talk about the fact that she has um, FACSD. Could you like, you know, maybe just explain a little bit more for me what that is again? Yeah, so fetal alcohol spectrum disorder. I think for me it was an eye opener. It's more common than autism, more common than Down syndrome, but no one really knows about it. Mm. Um, and I think it comes down to taboo. I think one is the government guidelines, even before it's never been clear. You know, they've never actually said you shouldn't drink during pregnancy because this could happen. They say, you know, you could have up until 2017, it was like you could have two units, you know, a week or, or this or that. They, there was never really any clear guidelines. Mm. And I think what people need to get out of their head, and I kind of mentioned it in my book, is there any way we'll, because this is something that can be avoided. But I think it's, again, as a society, we're scared to talk about it because we feel we're judging. And I feel we're not. It's how it's how we approach it. And sometimes I think we need to be really mindful. I do mention it in my book that, you know, some mums who were pregnant might have not known they were, they were pregnant while drinking. Mm. And then actually they might not come forward because it's quite shameful to say, I've given this to my child, but it's not because it's not their fault. Or, you know, they could have become pregnant through, you know, through horrific circumstances. And I think we always have to bear that in mind. Mm -hmm. I think there needs to be a lot of training regarding health visitors and midwives and how we deal with it. Because some, you know, I've been on courses where like a health visitor say, yeah, I think this child has it, but I can't ask mom. I, mm -hmm. I can't go down that path. And I'm thinking, why is it, why is it becoming such a taboo subject actually? If we're going to support the families, and if it's out in the open yeah. and people know about it, yeah. it can be preventable. And actually, and so there's no stigma attached. And I think for me, what I realised was, and I, have, I haven't mentioned it in the book, but like when Leila got her diagnosis of fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it meant nothing. People had no clue because they were like, yeah, okay, whatever. And this actual brain damage, it damages the brain. And people go, well, will she ever get better? And the answer is no, it's brain damage. You know, when, when you know, you're drinking while pregnant, it affects the growth of the brain. Yeah. Um, and so basically it's 100% brain damage. But because... The children can kind of talk to Layla. I'll give, you know, I'll give my example for Layla. So Layla, you know, Layla can have like a conversation, and she's so articulate. So people will be like, "Ah, oh. so she can understand what we're saying." So she actually, she's quite naughty because she's not listening. So Layla could repeat all the rules to you, and you'll be like, "Oh, she does understand," but actually, she hasn't processed it. She's actually just repeated what you've said. Um. And I think what what this comes back down to is when we're toddlers, what do we learn to do first? We understand the words, we understand the language before we learn to speak. Right, uh -huh. but with, with children with like or adults with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, it's the other way. 
they learn to they learn the words, but they can't process it because the brain is taking time to process it. And what they remember today, they can forget tomorrow. It's not them being difficult or them being lazy. Wow. So yeah, exactly. And and so you know, when Layla had like a homeschool diet because she had like a one to one at school, the thing I used to stick in front of her folder was think, um, can't, not won't. Because this is what people really need to understand. It's not that she won't do it. It's because she can't do it. Wow. Again, it comes down to, because Mm -hmm. she looks okay, it's just a child is having a tantrum or she's throwing a wobbly. Yeah. And it's not these children. It's so much, I mentioned sensory processing, because getting so overloaded, they can only cope with one thing. And I think the only way to explain that is you can't give them two or three instructions. It has to be one instruction but that has to be very clear and I know sometimes when I've said something to Layla I'll be like I'll I'll think to myself I've just confused her I haven't explained it properly but she will she will now say to people you know it's technique I'll say just say it she'll say sorry I don't understand what you're saying I don't I don't understand what you mean and they'll look at her and go um, and then I will kind of repeat what they're trying to get Layla to do or show Layla because Children with fetal alcohol spectrum disorder are very visual. They learn through visuals, so like timetables or now and next, because they suffer from a lot of anxiety. And they need to know, they need to know what's happening now and they need to know what's happening next. Yeah. You know, if you can say it's one o'clock or, or we're doing this in three hours, how long is a piece of string to them? They don't get that. Right. So they need, yeah, they need visuals. So this was a thing that was really hard in school for, for people to understand. They'd be like, oh, well, I told her she was going next, but, you know, she, she, she threw a wobbly and she did this. I'm like... Yeah, but she's going next. What does that mean? Five minutes, 10 minutes now? She doesn't get it. If you had a timer and that timer, you know, you know, the sand kind of finished, you'd know actually once it's finished, that's my time. Mm. So they need a lot of visuals. They need, they need, you know, instructions breaking down. They need a lot of repetition. So in school, obviously, you know, you learn a topic, you move on. Mm, that's not going to work with Layla. She needs that repeated again and again in order to kind of absorb it and understand it and then go back to it. Wow. Um, and with, with it's alcohol spectrum disorder, it's like autism. There's a big spectrum. So again, a bit like CF, it depends on how it affects them. You know, some, some children have um, a heart disorder, like they have, you know, heart problems or the death or... So that, there's a lot of... It's, it's a spectrum and there's a lot of things that come with it, to be honest. But the, the one thing that I can say is that most of them need things that are broken down, simple language, very clear. And I think... Even now, and I think it's really sad that actually quite a few of these children go through the criminal justice system because people think it's them misbehaving. They don't understand. They don't understand what they've done. And they're very vulnerable. Yeah. And then they turn to drugs and alcohol. And actually, they were actually an addict because obviously they've become an addict. They've gone through the withdrawal symptoms. Yeah. And I think we give them the right support and the right strategies and actually people will start understanding we can support them that that can be avoided yeah. so, so for me it, it, yeah and I think I think for me and I think what was I because so Layla was diagnosed with autism and ADHD last September and the only reason so I've got an amazing psychologist and you will probably know that with cystic fibrosis you you know you, you see all these specialists and with the cystic fibrosis Layla sees a psychologist and she's been our life savior because she saw Layla as a whole and, and she said to me, because I said, I'm sure she's got autism. And no one would listen to me. And say, oh, there's that mother. She thinks she knows everything just because she did teaching and special needs or whatever. And, and she said to me, you know what, we'll wait. We'll wait until she's older because they'll just say she'll grow out of it. 
And and then when she, Layla was really struggling in year one, and the learned disability nurse was involved, was like, right, now's the right time to get the diagnosis, to do the assessment and let's see. So obviously when Layla was diagnosed with autism, it kind of opened up a whole load of doors because it was like, now she can go to a specialist school if she wants to. Mm-hmm. But I'm not going to send her because I know she's doing really well at the moment. And even the psychologist said to me, when we had our visit recently, you're not going to send her back to school in September, are you? Even a specialist school, because she'll go. And I'm like, no, don't worry. We're not even going there yet. Um, but but it has made me, people think it's opened up a lot of doors because a lot of support, like the autism resources, you know, I can touch into that. But why is it like that? <laughs> because it because it's more well-known, mm-hmm. even though actually fetal spectrum disorder is supposed to be more common. Apparently it should be one child in every classroom. Really? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Wow. Um, yeah. So it, it, it's been an eye-opener, I think, for me. So obviously that, that holds no weight, you know, that actual diagnosis that autism does, which I think is really sad because I don't think we need to get that diagnosis for people to listen. But the niche guidelines are coming out in the summer, um, and that should open up a whole load of doors. It's for fetal alcohol spectrum disorder, what local authorities should start be implementing in their schools, in the health system. Um, so I'm really hoping that kind of, yeah, it gets out there. And you've, I mean, I'm hoping, obviously you realise that with doing this in Afternoon Delight, I'm hoping it gets out there too, because I've known very briefly about this from working with, I used to work in primary schools and I worked with children since I was like um, 17 as a youth theatre leader. But I worked with um, Upward Mobility in Edinburgh, which is a centre with people that have got disability or learning difficulties. And I was getting trained on autism, behavioural training, and I was like, oh, amazing, getting to know all this and getting my head around it all. But this briefly was mentioned as a sort of one page of a 50 slideshow. (laughs) And I was like, all right, cool, I'm glad that I know what that is. But when I'd read it in the book and your explanations were so good, the way you were like, this can be impacted here and this can connect here. And I was like, oh my God, this is really useful for me if I ever meet someone going back to the everyday life that has got that it's so and I like that expression it's not won't it's can't I just love such simple phrase but it has so much power to it and there's another um thing that I use actually you know how people was going um um practice makes perfect Mm -hmm. you know progress makes perfect and it doesn't it doesn't at all because what is perfect like you said you know what what is perfect nothing is perfect we're all imperfect so actually what I say to Layla now Practice makes progress. It doesn't make perfect. Practice makes perfect because, because Layla suffers, you know, from low self-confidence. And, and actually, I don't want it to be perfect. I want her to enjoy what she's doing, the content. Yeah. Practice makes progress. And, and now, she, you know, she says it all the time. And when people say it, she goes, no, no, no. Not perfect. It's progress. <laughs> That's going to be my new affirmation before bed. I'm, st- <laughs> I'm still in that. It's honestly, so like, you know, life during the pandemic has clearly not stopped for you in many ways. You know, the book is out, people can get it. I've learned so much from it. Um, what has life been like in general the last 14 months? You know, feel free to share as much as you want. The homeschool in particular, I can imagine, like, what has life been like and how have you been managing to cope with that? Have you been doing a lot of self-care time? Do you know what? I have, and to be honest, Jordi, I'm going to be so honest. This, this last year has been... And I feel really guilty for saying it because obviously what's been going on in, in the world. And, and this is the way how I put it in perspective. Like this has been a really good year for me. And the reason why I say that is because I've been lucky that I've got a roof over my head. Yeah. You know, I was working, I got a job, you know, during the pandemic actually. Um, and 
you know, my, my, my family are working, the money's coming in, we've got food on the table. You know, so many people have had worse situations. People said to me, well, it's not hard children. I said, but you know what? I haven't had to step out that door. I, I was lucky that I didn't have to worry that something was going to happen to Layla or my dad, who's over 70. Mm. Imagine those, those families have got no choice and they have to go to work because they have to put food on the table. Mm-hmm. So that's how we changed our perspective. And, and for me, what, what I've realised, I have done a lot of self-care because actually I lost four stones during during covid <laughs> i wasn't very big and people say to me how could you lose four stones because you wasn't very big i think what it was is obviously grief plays a big part in my life and the pressures of i was in this hamster world you know i've got to do everything you've got to do this you've got to do that and actually the pandemic and shielding made me yeah i saw that what you wrote actually and that that actually hit another note on me you know when you wrote actually you've taken time out and, and you do this and that for family and friends and you're not gonna that's me now as well so I was in this hamster wheel and I thought I have to do this I have to please people have to do yes 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 Mm-mm, no I've taken that step back because actually during when we were shielding people weren't harassing us and actually I could I could just breathe and I realized actually yeah. what was I doing so these 14 months I have done a lot of self-care you know I, I've been doing a lot of exercise I've, I've been managing to do it at home without using the gym I've I've gone back to I used to exercise a lot when Arvin was here and actually when Arvin died I started to comfort eating uh, and exercise went out the window. Right. Last year, excuse my French, I've got my shit together. <laughs> and um, yeah, so so obviously I've been doing that. And and actually I feel my bond with Layla has become more incredibly close. So you know, we've grown as a mother and daughter. I feel I feel I've I understood her more better. You know, and I feel with me, I put my hands up. My mum is much calmer. I wasn't. You know, I've written in the book, you've got to choose your battles. Yeah, and I've been always one of those like you know it's got to be like this and I've been doing a lot of blogging but I've been doing a lot of self-reflecting that that actually before I'd be like no we've got to do this Layla why are you saying actually no we don't have to do that and it's okay not to do that yeah mm-hmm. so for me I've grown as a person and and I think my relationship with Layla's become stronger because I feel I've really got to know her even more yeah for that yeah. and I feel I feel I feel more connected. I think I think we've connected even more. I know that sounds a bit weird, but but that's the only way I can explain it. <laughs> Doesn't sound weird at all. It makes a lot of sense. I um, I saw this Barbara's quote a few days ago that was like her biggest piece of advice was choose your battles. And I thought to myself, what does that mean? Choose your battles. And I was like, right, okay. And I listened to an interview she did where she said it, so I could just get the context. And it was, you know, choose your battles. You know, don't try and fight every fight because you'll exhaust yourself and burn out, you know, choose the ones that matter most because those are the ones that you will actually make a difference. And I went, do you know what? That is it. Because I, at one point during the pandemic in summer last year, was um, very well known in the LGBT community in Edinburgh, which is brilliant, but also a bit of a curse that I had so many people messaging me, right, can you give me advice on this and this and this? And I had to say, listen, like, I don't, there was a, a young woman I know who's brilliant, but she'd said, we're doing this in the school in the new term and we're doing LGBT identity stuff and you're great with this sort of stuff. And I said, I am great with this sort of stuff, but it's not my job to do it. And I'm not speaking on the behalf of Scotland. <laughs> do you know what I mean? <laughs> Go and research or contact LGBT youth, et cetera. And that did help. But normally, if it had been pre-pandemic, I went, right, let me go and find all this out for you for two hours, send it, and then realise I'm running past my own deadline. Do you know, it was, it was stuff like that. And, and that's me, because I stepped down for something recently, because I thought, what am I doing? It's taking so much of my time. And actually, yeah. I'm putting pressure on myself again, and I can feel myself getting to that place. 
I don't want to go back to that place. I want to be the way I am again now. Um, so yeah, so I think, I think, you know, a lot of reflecting, a lot of stillness, appreciating the moments and just, just going slow. Totally. <laughs> For you, I can understand what you mean about if your brother sadly passed away and then you didn't want to exercise anymore and comfort him because it was like when my I used to bake with my nana when I was wee and when she died, I remember I was like, I'm never baking again. And for some reason, it was like, never baking again. And during the pandemic, you know, artists, all of us were baking banana bread because we had nothing to do. <laughs> <laughs> so it was banana bread um, <laughs> because bananas go off. But I was... And was like, oh, I want to do something today. And I was saying to my therapist, because I was in therapy online on Zoom for six months. And then I finished. And I said to her, like, oh, I, I baked banana bread this week. And she's like, oh, I went. And I really didn't want to do it because it just brings up all these memories. But you know what? I'm really glad I did. And she'd be happy I did it. And she really started crying during the session. <laughs> and I was like, I feel like me again. <laughs> yeah, and that's me. Nice. I, I feel like it's given... I, I, it's given me that buzz. I remember what it gave to me, the adrenaline. And actually, what started off as weight loss, which is why I did the exercise, actually, it's not about that now. It's about my mental health. Mm-hmm. And that's why I'm doing it again. Totally. Oh, I'm so glad. So, you know, what advice would you give to people that are, like, you know, on their own or in general, anyone that's considering adopting? You know, what advice would you give to them if they wanted to consider adopting? I think we touched on this briefly. But I think, I think for me, if you're going to adopt... You can do it, but do it for the right reasons. Do it, do it because you can love this child unconditionally, mm. and it's going to be sacrifices. Let's be honest. You know, as any parent, there is sacrifices. You know, as you know, being a parent, and I think don't be put off by by the whole assessment is very intrusive. Don't be put off if you're single. Anyone can adopt. To be honest, you know, you can even live in a council house. It doesn't mean you have to own your own house. You know, the, people think that there's a lot of you have to be like a, you know, a couple, like a husband and wife. Mm. And, you know, you have to, you know, you have to have a house and you have to do this. And actually it, it's not like that, especially nowadays it's changed, changed so much. And there is a lot of support out there. And I do think go, I think do your homework as well. You know, do your homework and what adoption actually means. So you do know what you're doing, to be honest. And I think that's, that's the real advice I can really give, honestly. And I think for us, adopting Layla, we kind of knew what we were, laying ourselves in for because obviously my brother was disabled and you know he was ill and kind of we knew what it was we knew what, what to expect and and for us it was like like for my brother for example like he could walk and then he stopped walking right and, and for him he was like it doesn't matter if I stop walking because you know what I'm still living and I'm here and I'm gonna make the most of my life so I don't care I think that's the motto that, you know, us as a family has been like, we can't change the situation, but it's what we can do from it. And I think, I think, I think that's what I would want to tell, you know, people who are going to adopt that actually, if this happens, what can you do from that situation? You know, you know, look at it, look at it long-term, you know, like, will you be okay? For example, if, if your child wants to go and look for their birth parents, will you be okay with that? Are you going to deny them that? And if you're going to deny them that, imagine what that's going to bring up because actually they might go against you for that. So I think rather than look at now, look at the future, think about everything as a whole. Yeah, I'm so glad you've said that because I feel like that is really useful for people like me, especially like, but anyone and especially I've got a lot of LGBT listeners who a lot of my friends or colleagues would have, I know a few actually who have adopted who just didn't want to go down the route of surrogacy because it was just, they wanted to, their attitude was, I'd rather give a home to a child that needs one than bring another one into this world right now. And I was like, yeah. 
So I totally, totally am so grateful for you sharing that. Uh, you know, you've got the first book out, you know, uh, what are the goals now when the pandemic resolves? You know, are you going to try and write some more books or you got any some goals? Yeah, so, so, so the next book, and this has literally just been like in the last few weeks. So, you know, obviously I'm talking about my brother, I'm talking about grief. So obviously my, my, my new job now, like I said to you, I've got a new job. So I was volunteering for them, but obviously they gave me a lot of support. So now I'm working for a charity that supports families whose um, child has died. And I do the sibling side of it. And obviously I'm in touch. So, I, you know, I still go to support groups for myself and things like that. But I'm obviously running support groups for, for siblings who, who's, who, you know, siblings have died. These are for the adult ones. You know, any age, any circumstances. But actually what I've realised is it's 12 years down the line and actually there's hardly any books out there for siblings. Yeah. And so I actually did a blog recently because a sibling asked me, why do we not talk about how we feel 14 years down the line, I want to know how you're feeling now rather than in the early days. So I said, oh, that, I said, that's so big. I can't just do it in one line. I'm going to have to write a blog on it and then I'll send it to you. And if you're right with it, I'll post it. And and so that's what I did. But actually I've got so much feedback from it that that's going to be my next book um, about grief and about, you know, about how we feel about it. Because I think, again, that that's something that's a taboo subject. We don't talk about it. People think we have the funeral, we move on and that's it. And it's not like that at all, you know, yeah. <laughs> I had tweeted this a few days ago. It's so weird that you say that. I tweeted a few days ago saying that, um, you know, I have experienced seven bereavements in my life and I'm 26. And when I tell people that, like, I went to the street, which is a bar in Edinburgh, we could go for a drink. And I'd say to the owner, oh, because she was talking about her brother and how he died in 2016, but she's still, you know, during the pandemic, she dealt with it. But, you know, she's still years on thinking about it. And I said to her, oh, well, you know, I've had seven people die in my life. And my friend, Katie, who sadly died last September, had CF. Um, you know, I got put on that amazing medication, Caftio, but she got put on it too late and died. And it was such a head fuck. And I told her this, and she went, you're 26 and you've experienced seven people. And I said, well, people with CF, my dad, my nana, I've experienced a lot of death. And she went, that's just so intense. And how does that feel now? And I went, well, it's funny you say that because my dad's death and my nana's death. Now I feel more than I did at that point. I went into that freeze sort of trauma response of, I don't know what to say or do, I'm too young. Whereas now I'm like, oh no, this is really impacted on my life. And do you know what, you've hit a point there because obviously, you know, I used to run like sibling support groups. Um, again, I sat down obviously when Layla came and exactly what you said. So when they've lost their sibling, when they were younger, they felt they couldn't talk about it or deal with it. And actually it was like, just go to school or do this and, and that's it. But actually when they get older, it then hits them and that's when they can grieve. And I'm so glad you're doing that. That's an absolutely incredible thing to be doing. You are just amazing. So we've only got like two questions left and that's us done. It's been such a beautiful interview. It really has. Um, we look at hope for season three of Afternoon Delight. So in season one, it was how has the pandemic affected everyone's mental health? In season two, we did gratitude. But for season three, I really wanted to look at hope because, you know, with vaccines and stuff, hope has become quite a central point. And what we're looking at is, you know, was there one moment in your life that hope got you through or if you want to just share what your um, opinion is on hope that would be absolutely incredible I think for me you know when I saw that question I had to really think about it because obviously you know the, the, there was another bit to that bit and it was you know the worst and the happy in your life and obviously that was my brother and then I thought the hope bit, it kind of didn't sit right but then after like talking to myself about it a couple of times this is how I'm just gonna just say it so for me you know went through a lot of shit through that but then for me it was 
my brother was my inspiration during life. He taught me what life really was about when he was alive. And again, I think that's why marriage and all that actually was irrelevant. I didn't need all that because that's that wasn't what life was about. It was, yeah. And afterwards, for me, it was like everything I'm doing, even now, like the book and stuff, I feel my brother's just there guiding me and kind of pushing me through and saying like, I just feel like he's talking to me and I'll have these conversations in my head like, you know, why are you doing it that way? You know, you'd be doing it this way. Or, or yeah, I'm really proud of you. And I think that's given me the hope that he's pushing me and striving me to be a better person and making a difference in this world. And I think that's what I want to do is make a difference. I don't want to just do, no disrespect to everyone else. I don't want to do what everybody else is doing and like, feel like I have to get married and have kids for the sake of it. I want to make a difference um, because I feel my brother made a difference. I saw the difference he made to other people and I want to, I want to take that through. And you know, it's so interesting because when my friend Kate had died, I genuinely after that cemented her in my head and there would be moments where I wasn't coping and I had her being like, hey, I don't think so, come on. Exactly, um, exactly know, yeah. Really helped. Oh, honestly, this has been absolutely beautiful. Before we finish with our quote, we end every episode of Afternoon Delight with an inspiring quote or an affirmation or even just a quote from yourself. Um, is there anything you would like to you know, promote? Where can people like follow your work? Okay, so I've got two pages and I have to make it very clear because I really confuse people. So I've got two two um, Facebook pages. One of them is on Instagram. So I've got Layla's Life, My Words, and that's on Instagram and on Facebook. And that's kind of, I was getting feedback about, we want to know how the home education is going and what's going on with that. So I blog about me reflecting as a parent mm-hmm. and how the home education is working for Layla. So that's what that's about. And if you Google it on Facebook, it will come up um, at um, FASD Parent, as well as Layla's Life, My Words. And then I've got a separate blog, which is called Let's Talk About Taboo Subjects. And that talks about what's happening in the world. So racism, um, I talked about marriage, so the whole thing about marriage and the whole taboo of like ticking the life box. Mm-hmm. Um, I talked about um, periods because that was a big thing about you know, even, you know, in Scotland, I think Scotland were the first um, country to make it free in secondary schools, like sanctuary towels. So I talked about that. So from, for that's a blog about things that are happening in the world, to be honest, and grief and stuff like that. Amazing. Oh, absolutely brilliant. Well, like I said, we finish sort of afternoon delight with a quote and I would love for you to share yours, Shushma, before we finish. Okay, so this is from Gandhi and this is be the change you want in this world. <laughs> and I think I think we you know we mind so much as society, but we have to change. We are society. Uh, so, yeah. Yep. I totally know that quote. I live by that quote all the time. Brilliant. Shushma, it's been an absolute delight having you on afternoon delight. Thank you for joining me. Thank you so much, Georgie. I've absolutely loved it. It's been so much fun. Oh, was that not just an absolutely incredible and delightful interview. There's a lot to kind of um, reference here and go back to it. And one of the things for me was the fact that obviously I joked and mentioned Tracy Beaker. But I love that nowadays we are looking at making, like that Gandhi quote, the change. You can live your life and you don't have to live your life to a certain narrative that's been created by society of, you know, a princess in a fucking castle gets rescued by a prince. Don't get me wrong, if a prince rescues me and takes me to a castle, I might say yes. 
<laughs> but I'm not sitting here day by day hoping for that, which is why I brought that up with Shishma about like the adoption stuff because on Twitter I just remember honestly me being like I'm gonna be calm one day I can just see it and people being like no gal live your life you'll meet a guy and I'm like it's not about a guy it's literally about like be living my life the way I want to and shush <laughs> shush was incredible the book really was incredible like please go and check it out you can get it on Amazon anywhere um, it's such a good book. It's so educational and informative. I learned loads. And one of the things I will say during this pandemic is we all need to learn. We all need to read more. We all need to do our education, you know, especially when BLM happened, Reclaim Streets happened. Um, I know for a fact, actually, that when Shushma sees my stuff on Facebook, one of the things she commented on was the gender stuff that I share. And she was like, oh, thank you so much for educating me. I'm learning new stuff. And I was like, thinking to myself, well, that's incredible, but thank you, because you're educating me on FASD, on the adoption processes, what it was like for Asian families to adopt, all these things that I didn't consider, didn't know about. It's, we don't get anywhere by not listening to others. That's the important dynamic. And what have we done for three seasons of Afternoon Delight? We have listened to so many guests, so many guests on Afternoon Delight. Shushma book honestly really changed how I looked at a lot of things mentally and my outlook and I'll, I'll say this now that for me on a personal note seeing Layla's life told by the words of Shushma was so interesting because I did feel like I was looking at my past life and that was hard like that was really hard for me to sit and go god this is what my life used to be like growing up CFYs and in general and how misunderstood I was and Alana, on the last episode of Afternoon Delight for Shishma, herself said, you know, I grew up feeling misunderstood and actually I had ADHD. And I find it so fascinating. And that moment that Shishma was like, it's not she won't, it's she can't. I was like, oh, that is such a powerful thing to be able to say. And the ability to say no, you know, Shishma and me are just so similar. I can see it when I say earlier, you know, two ends of a coin. I can see very similar people, similar outlooks. Um, but I think the moment that I've seen her actively comment on my stuff, I've been like, oh, we should, um, you know, thank you for educating me on gender, etc." And I'm thinking, thank you for educating me on FSD and all these other things, like, thank you. And the idea of doing a book on grief for siblings at an older age, like, oh, you don't even understand how important that is. But, you know, my dad's grief hit me. He died when I was nine. My dad's grief hit me when my friend Katie died. You know, these things actually come out usually. Children just go into a state of shock usually, unless they're nurtured properly. As an adult, it just all comes out. And that book is incredible and so, so going to help so many people. And thank you, Shishma, for just helping so many people. Because all I can say to you is a last bit of advice and words of wisdom. Reading that book, the important part of reading that book was that I went, that was my life because we're continuing to change and grow. And the fact that Shushma has documented this and said, you know, Leila now is not who she used to be. She's able to do all this, put in chips and beans, etc. And homeschooling's paying off for that. I thought, there you go. In several years, Leila might be communicating well. Like, who knows? On the stage performing, who knows? But you will continue to grow and develop and change if you nurture and I know that Shushma is doing everything right, and I'm so impressed.
Thank you, Shushma, for being an absolute iconic last guest for Afternoon Delight.